Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. For today's episode, we're going to feature a live panel discussion held by and beyond to mark World Pangolin Day on 20th February. The discussion is hosted by Clara Bovchevska, Executive Travel Editor of Town & Country Magazine. Panelists include and beyond Group Conservation Manager, Les Carlyle, as well as Professor Raymond Johnson, Chairman of the African Pangolin Working Group. Wildlife Rehabilitation Specialist, Nikki Wright, founder and director of the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Hospital, speaks about the rehabilitation process for pangolins recovered from illegal trade in South Africa, while Lisa Highwood, founder and CEO of the Tiki Highwood Foundation, talks about pangolin rescues in other African countries. Bruce Young, director, producer and narrator of the documentary Eye of the Pangolin, explains the challenges faced by pangolin conservationists in Africa. Priyan Pereira, from the University of Srijayawardenpura, discusses his experiences with the species in Sri Lanka. Hello, my name is Clara Glovchevska, and I'm the executive travel editor of Town & Country magazine in New York. I will be the sort of master of ceremonies for our discussion today. And our topic, of course, is the not well-known, quite threatened, oddly charismatic animal called the pangolin. There are eight species of them, four in Africa, four in Asia, and they have an unfortunate distinction. They have been dubbed the world's most trafficked mammal. They're trafficked both for their meat, which is considered a delicacy, and for their scales, which are used in traditional medicines. They're poached locally, and they're the object of a massive and ruthless international trafficking uh, wildlife trade involving well-organized criminal syndicates all of which is bringing them to what has been described as a silent extinction, not well known and yet extremely threatened, all of which we'll be talking about today. I have a personal interest in matters of conservation. I've written quite a bit about it for Town & Country magazine, but I'm an amateur. Our panelists today, however, are some of the world's greatest experts in conservation generally and in the pangolin specifically. They are the people in the trenches and we'll be hearing from them. So let's begin. First up, Les Carlisle. Welcome, Les. Hi, Clara. So Les is and Beyond's group conservation manager. There are certain animals that get the bulk of the conservation limelight. We all know about elephants. We know about rhinos. We know, we know about lions. We know that their numbers are declining and that they're in danger but not so the smaller species. So I want to ask you first about what is the overlooked importance of smaller species like the pangolin when we're talking about conservation? There's a very clear reason why the smaller species are generally overlooked in, in the general melee of conservation issues that are put out into the world and that where people are trying to rally support. And I think the challenge with any program is, is trying to reach a target audience and trying to make sure that the iconic species are easy, as you've said, people understand them, people know what they are. So it's much easier to call people to action for something they know. If it's something they don't know, it's much more difficult to try and you first have to describe what it is and then describe how it fits in and then describe what the threat is to the system before you can actually call to action. So in this time poor environment that we've had until 
2019 until the start of COVID when people suddenly had time. But before that, people were quite reluctant to spend too much time looking at one thing. They would be engaged with and grabbed by a species that they knew and understood, and the call to action was clear, and they'd be able to run to help. So when you look at zoos in the cities and and, um, international NGOs, they've done a remarkable job of raising the profile of many different species and issues and many different abilities to to raise funds or to raise the plight of a specific species. But that's largely preaching to the converted because not everybody in the city goes to the zoo in the first place. So the parts of society that don't go to the zoo Mm. are the parts of society that actually need to hear the message. And that's the challenge that we've always had. But I think until now, we've been going after what we can get rather than being focused on where we need to target the message to make the biggest difference. So understanding the context in which NGOs, fundraising, the plight of our iconic species. And when you look at what Disney did with the lions, between the two movies that they released, the two Lion King movies, Lions lost 50% of their population. Mm. Between the two movies, we lost 50% of the wild lions. That's such a simple statistic to bring forward as a call to action. It's much more difficult when you say pangolins are the most trafficked mammal in the world, which you said in the introduction. And I can see a lot of people saying, goodness, we didn't know that. What is a pangolin? So so now you've got to first try and explain what the animal is before you can understand what the problem is to it. So I think it's really important to understand that conservation is complicated. There's no simple conservation problem. And conservation problems sit in environments and in circumstances that are different. And that makes resolving conservation issues quite complicated. And we're very keen in the, particularly in the in the electronic world, to just put simple lines to problems and then solve them with simple solutions. But unfortunately, that's only part of what we need to do because conservation needs some very careful thought because you can have unintended consequences if you jump into too quickly. So to answer your question directly, the reason why the smaller species don't get as much attention is that it's much more difficult to draw attention to the smaller species to achieve a conservation outcome. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So why is preserving any species, big or small, so crucial to stabilizing biodiversity in the world? Because that's really ultimately what we're talking about, right? Absolutely. You first have to probably take a step back and understand that biodiversity is all life. It's life on the planet. And understanding that our planet, we're in a completely sealed environment. We have an atmosphere and outside of that, there's nothing. So we have to make this planet work with what we've got inside inside this, this cocoon that we live in. And I think when you start understanding the dynamics of how interrelated things are, it starts becoming more and more important to understand biodiversity and how it works. When I started in the wildlife translocation trade 40 years ago, We just moved big charismatic species, and that was because that was what was needed. When we built Pinda, we reversed local extinctions of all the predators and all the animals that we needed to achieve a commercial conservation objective, which is to get people to travel halfway around the world to come and visit the game reserve. If we didn't achieve that, we wouldn't be able to protect the game reserve. So your objectives from a conservation management point of view inform your actions. And when you look at the planet and biodiversity and this call to action that we're discussing now, is it's it's really important to understand 
that there's linkages which we don't know and don't understand within the systems. And these linkages become more and more apparent as we get more and more data and as we study them longer. So we, we certainly know a lot about certain species and we know less about others. Pangolin is one of those things that's only recently been studied and we've probably got the preeminent panel in the world to be able to answer the questions about pangolin and how they fit in. But when you look at all the other species that we do understand, you can see the linkages are simple and are clear. With some of the species, they're not as clear as with others. So we certainly know how well species are doing within a system. And if we can measure how well those individual species are doing in the system, we can surmise that that's an indication of how well the system's doing. And we as humans within this cocoon need the system to support our lives. So we use individual species as a litmus test of how well we're doing in the system's mm -hmm. protection. Mm -hmm. So we don't always understand the immediate impact but we understand that if we can use them as a measure of how well the system's doing, we're going to be better off. Right. So you're really talking about sort of a holistic approach to conservation, right? Are you saying that that is really the, the only kind of legitimate way forward is to look at every sort of little piece of the, of the web of life, as it were? Yes? Absolutely. And I, I think that's probably the best way to describe why we need to take a holistic approach to, to biodiversity conservation. And, and to use that analogy of the spider, when you look at how a spider web is built, it's got all these support strands that come together to support the living entity in the middle, which is the spider. And if we use the cocoon that I mentioned earlier as the planet and inside our atmosphere, mm -hmm. we link to everything around us. And the same way as the spider web is linked. And in between the main support webs, we've got these little interlinking webs, which are connecting different strands. And when one of those breaks, the web doesn't collapse. Mm -hmm. But it has an impact in the ability of the web to catch certain species of prey for that spider. Mm -hmm. So while it might not have a catastrophic effect on the web, it has an impact on the ability of the web to be effective to feed the spider. So we don't understand what all these little connections are always in science. Mm -hmm. We get to know them. Sometimes they're less important than others. What we do know is then when we start breaking the support strands that support life on the earth, we spread the load to the next support strands. And when we break the next one, we spread the load to the last support strands. Mm -hmm. And when one of them goes, the web of life as we know it will change. Mm -hmm. And it could have immeasurable impact on us as humans in this planet. So we've got to understand that every breakage we make in the web of life has potential to impact on us and the ability for the system to sustain us on the planet. That, that's a great explanation of the web of life, the best I've, I've ever heard, actually. And it's a scary, scary image you draw. Super interesting. <laughs> thank you, Les. Pleasure, Clara. Okay, thank you. Next is Professor Raymond Jansen. Hi, Ray. Ray is founder and chairman of the APWG, which stands for the African Pangolin Working Group. Ray, so little is known about these funny-looking, endearing animals with their scales, their long nose, their tail, the way they just curl up in a ball when threatened. Can you tell us first how they evolved? Yeah, thank you very much, Clara. They're absolutely incredible, aren't they? For those of you who've seen pictures of pangolins, mm -hmm. or for those of you who've been blessed to, to walk with them or, or see one in the wild, when you first see a pangolin, it looks something like a bit of a reptile, and you wouldn't think this, this is a mammal. The only mammal covered in hard, overlapping scales, which is their, their greatest downfall for the illegal wildlife trade, is the demand for these scales, 
particularly from Asia. But when we did some recent work looking at the evolutionary origins of pangolins, it was interesting that we could date them back to the time of dinosaurs around about 85 million years ago, and they evolved from a common ancestor out of the carnivora, out of what would have been a dog or a cat-like creature. And that was then in the supercontinent Pangaea, which is now situated where North America approximately is right now. And when all the continents were joined, they then started migrating northwards up to what is now Germany, where the first fossilized pangolin was found. This pangolin was named Eomanus, and it dates back to around about 56 million years ago. They then seem to travel sort of southeastward, southwestward into Asia, where the four species exist today, and then across the bridge into India. And you have a stunning Indian pangolin today that's in parts of India and other adjoining areas. And then around about 40 to 45 million years ago, they moved over onto Africa before the continents completely split up from one another and gave rise to the four African species. We presume that the two ground-dwelling species, the Temex pangolin and the giant ground pangolin, were the origins and then gave rise to the two arboreal species, the tree-dwelling species. But that research hasn't been done. And, and really, I mean, we're only scratching the iceberg on what we know about these extremely rare but charismatic and bewitching mammals. We, we've had a, a wonderful pour out of scientists in the last decade from all parts of the world working on pangolins and coming together through the IUCN, the Species Survival Commission Pangolin Specialist Group, where we share a lot of research and a lot of knowledge and a lot of ideas. It's been the most amazing decade of science for pangolins. Wow, that's fascinating. Can you tell me what else makes them unique? There's their appearance. How do they impact the environment? Well, as far as we know, they only eat ants and termites. They have no teeth. They can hardly open their jaws. They've got a tongue about three quarters the length of their body that's stored in the abdominal cavity near the stomach. That alone makes them completely unique. Their wow. physiology, they, they seem to have a body temperature that can drop well below normal placental mammals, which are normally around about 35, 37, they can drop oh. right down to 28 degrees. Their contribution to ecosystems is very little is known about them. Personally, I don't believe that they have any large impact on ecosystems simply because they're so rare, they're territorial, they're few and far between. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that every species doesn't have an equal right to life. And the sad thing about pangolins is their demise and the demise of all eight species is at the hands of man and nothing else. Hmm. Wow. So, which segues into my next question. Could you talk about the specific threats to the African pangolin? To what extent are they poached for bushmeat? To what extent it's the scale, trade? Yeah. Culturally speaking, in the African continent south of the Sahara, Pangolins have been used for spiritual ceremonies for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. They also are an ingredient for bush meat, but it's quite a upper-class meat. They're expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, current prices are about, well, they were at 20 US dollars a pangolin. And that's a lot of money for a person in Africa who on average may only earn one US dollar a day. So they are pricey and they have been utilized in spiritual ceremonies for medical treatment of medical ailments in cultural practices. But in more recent years, I would say the last five years, the commodity chain has changed dramatically, where we've got a lot of development in Africa from the East. And 
they have stumbled across the availability of all four species of African pangolins. And what used to be a byproduct of bushmeat, the scales were often disregarded, has now a price tag to it. And we are seeing in more recent times that the amount of money exchanging hands is now more for scales than it was initially for the meat itself. Mm -hmm. So the people in Africa are now actively hunting pangolins to supply the Asian demand, where the Asian species has become increasingly rarer as they're harvested unsustainably in such large volumes that they're just difficult to find. And in many ways, to source African fauna and flora is a lot easier because law enforcement may not be as strict. It is in place, but it's simply not enforced. And these are the things that we need to address really, really rapidly. And I don't know, you know, a lot of the answers are to educate the youth and they bring in this whole new culture. I don't know if we've got two decades for Africa's pangolins where the youth can change certain perceptions. But on the other hand, we have to really stomp out the demand, uh, particularly from the East, such as uh, countries such as China, Malaysia and Vietnam are huge culprits in sourcing pangolin scales from Africa. All four African species face a risk of extinction, some more than others. For example, the giant ground pangolin, I think, is really in trouble. I think the two arboreal tree species are not quite as much in trouble, but effectively they all face a clear risk of extinction if we don't do something very drastically and quite urgently in a very small window we've got to save them. How small a window? You know, it's a very difficult species. We, we don't really know how many there are because you can't count a ghost. The majority are nocturnal. Only the black-bellied tree pangolin is diurnal. But they, they're so quite solitary and, and almost invisible. We, we mm -hmm. can't count exactly how many there are, but we know that they, they're in trouble. Some people say a few years, but Percy, I think we've got about two decades. And in that window, if we don't do something now to reverse it, mm -hmm. we get to a point where we reach what's called the minimum viable population size. White rhino were like that in the 60s, and we managed to turn that around, where we don't lose genetic integrity. So we need a species to hold its genetic integrity. Once we start wiping them out to a certain threshold, which, which where they lose that viable population of genetics, we're going to have all sorts of other issues we're going to be dealing with. And then we don't want to get into captive breeding scenarios. We don't want to get into risking and polluting gene pools where we have sterility and all sorts of horrible things rear their face. I think what we, we've, we've got a very small opportunity and a small window to uphold genetic integrity, but we really need to do this within the next few years at the mm -hmm. most. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ray. Thanks. Um, next, Nikki Wright. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Hi. Um, Nikki is the, a wildlife rehabilitation specialist. She's the executive director of APWG, the African Pangolin Working Group. She's the director as well of the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Hospital. And she's the wildlife project manager for the Humane Society International, the Africa branch. Uh, Nikki, I thought first if you could tell us about why so much of pangolin conservation centers on rehabilitation. With most other animals, it's about sort of stopping the killing, not so with this animal. Can you clarify that for us? I think it is about stopping the, the poaching, but there's so many different aspects to, to a species that is being hammered like the pangolin is. And the rehabilitation part of it is because when they come in off the trade, after having been poached, they are all compromised. 
and they all require a period of rehabilitation. So when you mean come off the tray, do you mean when the poachers are caught with live animals? Is that yes, it? I, yes, I do. So in this country, what happens is the law enforcement officers will have intelligence come through their networks and a sting operation will be set up. Very often, the African Panther Working Group, namely Ray, is involved with that operation. The sting operation will go down, the poachers will be arrested, the pangolin will be rescued from wherever they're holding it. And that pangolin, of course, is terribly compromised because it might have been held in a sack or a bag or a suitcase for a week or two weeks without food or water, terrified. Their stress levels are extremely high during this, this frightening period. You can imagine a quiet, shy, nocturnal animal suddenly finding itself poached. So when those animals are retrieved, that's when their rehabilitation period starts there, really, the retrieval. And they undergo veterinary treatment at the Johannesburg Wildlife Vet and then the rehabilitation after that. So tell us about the role of APWG in saving Africa's pangolins. What does the rehabilitation consist of? Well, the APWG has uh, quite a few roles. Quite a key one is education. So we do a lot of workshops, provincial workshops throughout Southern Africa or South Africa and in different countries. That could be with the judiciary, could be with law enforcement officers, conservationists, anti-poaching units, just to raise awareness and get the information out there. And then we work closely with other vets across Africa, really, networking with like-minded people and just generally trying to push the conservation of pangolin as much as we possibly can. Thank you. And, and what about the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Hospital? Like how, how do the animals come to you? What, what goes on there in the hospital? The Joburg Wildlife Vet is a unique facility because it's a veterinary hospital and a wildlife rehabilitation facility combined. And um, we have a staff of two vets, a veterinary nurse and myself. The pangolins that are brought off the trade come in and undergo a three-day sort of stabilization treatment. And, and from there, they are rehabilitated. So they're walked every day to feed. We observe them. We see what their behavior is like. And we, from there, determine where, where they can eventually be placed. I mean, some of these animals are so compromised that they're with us for maybe three months. Others, we can get out quicker than that. And they're, they're all, apart from being physically compromised, possibly with wounds, with lung issues, whatever they might have, they're also emotionally and psychologically traumatized. It takes quite a bit of working with them to get them over that sort of stress. So apart from working with all indigenous wildlife, we do sort of specialize in a couple of species, and one of those is pangolins. Pangolins, I see. How many pangolins yeah. come through every year, would you say? Well, it varies from year to year. Well, the hospital's been operating for four years now, and we've had about 138, 139 pangolins come through our doors in that period. I see. Okay. Thank you. It's amazing work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, thank you. Next is Lisa Highwood. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Clara. How are you doing? Uh, Lisa is the founder of the Tiki Highwood Foundation and a global authority on pangolins based in Zimbabwe. Could you tell us about the scale of the pangolin problem? You know, do we know how many pangolins are left? How many are trafficked annually? Clara, that's a very good question, but sadly, it's a question that none of us can actually answer. Ray touched on it slightly. This is a silent war that we've been fighting for many yes. decades. And uh, because we can't do aerial surveys or counts on these animals because they're so small in their size, like with the elephant and the rhino, we actually have no idea how many animals are left. 
So everything that we base our understanding on the species on is the trade figures. And one thing we can say is that the trade figures have continued to uh, rise over the last couple of decades. In fact, even when we were lobbying for the pangolin to be raised up to Appendix 1 from Appendix 2 at the CITES convention in Johannesburg in 2017, we had to base it all on trade figures. We couldn't base it on living species or living animals on the ground. Mm -hmm. So this is very important to understand because most things are based on science. And sadly, with the pangolin, we can't base it on actual figures. We're basing it on, on a ghost, as Ray said earlier. Can you give us the trafficking numbers? In some earlier conversation, I heard some stunning statistic about, you know, a shipment of them being intercepted. And there were like a ton of pangolin scales and trying to imagine how many animals that must have meant. To give you an example, these are huge numbers. Okay, so between 2016 to 2019, looking at seizures where there were at least half a ton or more, there were 52 different seizures around the globe. A lot of them came from Africa and mm -hmm. over 228 tons of scales were recovered. Now, remember that these seizures are only 10 to 15 percent that we are actually seeing. As uh, mentioned earlier, uh, law enforcement is an issue. It's something that needs to be worked on both here in Africa and in Asia. So mm -hmm. when you're dealing with those volumes of scales being trafficked around the world, this little animal, which doesn't weigh a lot, and remember that either 30 or 20 percent of body is only the volume of scales that that animal has, mm -hmm. the chances of survival for this animal, if we don't try and, and stop it now, mm -hmm. is it's going to head into extinction sooner than later. These are just stunning numbers. Sorry, so the seizures take place at sea, like in ports. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Both. So, so out of Africa, they'll go seaport and also airport. I think even through India, we're going to hear from somebody in India just now. And your sea and your airports are, are the ones that will where the seizures come from. They are moving them in containers. A lot of scales are being packed into hollow logs out of Mozambique. Mm -hmm. the, the trade and the way that they're actually moving pangolin scales out of Africa is unbelievable. You have to be really upfront and understand what is going on with the criminal mindset in order to try and even have an effect of stopping this. But it's happening daily. It's been happening. I think this trade has been going on for a few decades. I don't think it's a new thing. I think where the change has come is because more people are interested in the pangolin. I think Liz mentioned the charismatic species. Yes. Sadly, as a human race, unless you're big, attractive, and well-known, you're not really important. So what has been a turnaround with the pangolin over the last couple of years has been that there are more funding opportunities for people interested in saving this animal. There are more people on the ground that want to work with this animal. And that is what is, is a big change. But the trade, I believe, has been quite phenomenal for at least the last decade. Oh, that's extraordinary. Can you tell us about the Tiki Foundation and how uh, it became a, a pangolin's rehabilitation specialist? I can indeed. So I set up the Tiki Howard Foundation in 1994 in memory of my late father. Our intention was never actually to do pangolin. I chose the logo of a pangolin to honor my father because in our cultural tradition here in Zimbabwe, only a chief can receive a, a pangolin and only a chief can decide what to do with that pangolin. And my father was my chief, so I wanted to honor the memory of my father. Having said that, when we started and launched the Tiki Howard Foundation in 1994, the first species that we got involved in was actually elephant. And uh, we, in Zimbabwe, we were the 
the first people to do the bull elephant relocation. And we moved mm. 14 bull elephants for the first time in the world. What that experience showed me was that if you are large and charismatic, thousands of people globally want to support you. And mm. it was at that moment in time when I realized that I didn't want to support animals that already had a large following. Remembering that in Zimbabwe, elephants are not even endangered. They're not threatened mm. and we have an abundance of elephant. So it was at that point that I decided the Tiki Highwood Foundation would focus on the lesser known species and the species that were actually endangered and threatened, particularly in Zimbabwe. And one of the rarest animals in Zimbabwe is the Liechtenstein hartebeest. Most people think I'm swearing at them when I say that's what the animal is. But uh, going forward with the pangolin, the first pangolin that we received from the authorities who were confiscated the pangolin in trade was in October 1994. And that was where the journey for the Tiki Howard Foundation started. Mm -hmm. So for the past 27 years, we've been learning every single time we receive a new animal. We learn more about this animal. You mentioned the word specialist. I think we're far from being a specialist. There's so much more to learn with this animal. And there's so much more that we need to learn. But at least we have a way better understanding today than we did 27 years ago. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So can you tell us something about your specific projects? You have them in Zimbabwe, Liberia, and Cameroon. And also yes. I'd love to hear about your new partnership with the NGO African Parks. Yes, we started here in Zimbabwe. That's home base, so to speak. Yeah. And obviously, when we started with pangolin conservation, there were very few people around the globe that actually had even heard of a pangolin. Over time, I think people have reached out to us and and the need has arisen in certain countries like Liberia, Cameroon, uh, Uganda. Mm -hmm. And uh, what what our ethos is, is to try and develop a network of like-minded people around the globe, not just in the continent, Mm -hmm. so that there are multiple people that have an understanding of, of how to rescue a pangolin, rehabilitate it, and get it back out into a safe space. That's where our partnership with African Parks would come in because it's a unique partnership where both entities are specialized in separate areas. And really, at the end of the day, to rescue and rehabilitate any animal without space and without that preservation and security of a safe space, what we are doing, preserving and rehabilitating these animals and putting them into a non-safe space is counterproductive. So mm-hmm. that's where our partnership with African Parks came in. I would say they were the leading players in park rehabilitation and now to be able to develop a conservation program within their unique systems throughout Africa is an amazing step mm-hmm. forward and exciting. That's very exciting. So essentially they're providing the safe space, the safe habitat into which you can then release the rehabilitated pangolins. Absolutely. Space is a big problem. And I think all of us on this panel will all agree that we have two main factors that are terrifying going forward. One is the lack of space and two is overpopulation. And Mm -hmm. so if we don't address those two entities, then we are losing the battle and uh, call to action population. I can't say it enough, is we must address the population. And that comes back to every single one of us. It doesn't matter whether it's you, me, or rural people in different countries. Every single one of us must be accountable for the footprint that we are leaving on this earth. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Hi. (laughs) Bruce is the director, producer, and narrator of the film The Eye of the Pangolin, which is fabulous and I highly recommend to make this movie, you traveled extensively in Africa. Uh, you've met with conservationists. You talk to people in rural communities. What are your biggest takeaways from that? 
Clara, thanks for having me on your panel this afternoon. I'm very fortunate in the, in the sense that, that I love what I do. And I have been particularly privileged in, in this particular job, the shooting and producing of Eye of the Pangolin, to travel all over Africa and get to know this animal, number one, which was my, my primary takeaway, get to know a really, really special animal. And then to get to know the people who are caring for it, researching it, rehabilitating it, fighting the fight against the illegal wildlife trade, which is, which is as we've heard from everyone, decimating this creature. The privilege of meeting Lisa and, and Nikki and, and Ray over the last few years in the making of this film was huge. I mean, they're doing a remarkable job against enormous odds. And you, and you ask, what are the um, the issues that they're facing and awareness is is a huge huge issue and that's that's the reason that we made the film we wanted to introduce people to the four African pangolins so that at least at least people could know about it I mean if you if you if you go to Jane Goodall's famous quote just the first line only if we understand will we care mm-hmm. how can you understand if you don't know about it and yeah. so. This was our objective in making this film, was to help people get to know these animals. Mm -hmm. And we called it Eye of the Pangolin, so that if the eye is the window to the soul, and we were able to look into the eye of this animal through our films, through the people who are caring for it, then perhaps people would would be able to engage with it and engage with it emotionally, because emotions are where we make our primary decisions, our, our, our instinctive decisions. And maybe then there's an opportunity for them to get involved, to take action, to, to begin to help. The issues that these people who are working to save the pangolins, working to rescue them, are enormous. That awareness thing, local ignorance of people on the ground who just who just don't get it. I mean, it's it's difficult enough for us to get that this animal might disappear within the next 10 to 20 years, as Ray said. And I mean, I, I was in Nigeria earlier this year talking to the head of a, of a bushmeat market, and I said to him, do you not think that one day, if you take these animals out of the forest, that, that there will be no more? And he was adamant, absolutely strong on the fact that God made the forest full of animals for the people to feed on, and that there's no way that they would ever run out. I tried to dig a little bit deeper and I said, but, you know, there are eight dead pangolins on that table. Last year, were there more? Were there more 10 years ago? Yes, yes, there were much more. There would have been 15 or 20 on that table. So I said, doesn't that mean they're getting less? No, no. He was steadfast in his ignorance. So that that is a huge issue. Then the poverty. Poverty in, in rural Africa is enormous. And when you get Ruth's syndicates like the the legal wildlife trade organizations that are coming in and offering money to really, really poverty-stricken communities, then they're going to go out and find these animals and and sell them on. So that's another issue, poverty. And then as everyone has mentioned, Lisa and Ray particularly, the habitation loss, the space, the fact that these spaces are so, they're diminishing, number one, and and they're just being plundered because... People are, are trying to survive and trying to make the money that the illegal wildlife trade offers. And the illegal wildlife trade is, is the biggest issue. I mean, as, as Ray said, the demand has to be dealt with because if, if you can 
somehow impact that, then there's a chance that the trickle back to these populations that are doing the poaching and, and the trading will have some effect. That's what we saw. Um, my colleague, Johan Vermeulen, who I made the film with, mm-hmm. he and I traveled to Ghana, to the Central African Republic, mm-hmm. to Gabon. And then now on the second film that I'm working on about the pangolins, I've been to Nigeria and to, to Cameroon. Are there any highlights yeah. on those journeys you could share? The highlight was getting to know this animal, this species. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's really quite an incredible little creature. I'm biased. All creatures, <laughs> all wild creatures are perfect. But but this one seems particularly perfect to me. 85, 84 million years of evolution has turned it into this sweet, kind, gentle, but stubborn and strong. It's like a... It's like a, a bulldozer sometimes when it moves through <laughs> through the bush, making a hell of a noise. And it they're moody often. Sometimes they're open to you, and other times they're very, you know, the ones in rehab that we've been able to get close to and get to know a little bit. They're characters. That's my that was a highlight. And then the people, the the people who mm-hmm. are looking after them, as I said, are just how they carry on, how they make it through. Each day, I, I don't know, sometimes I was able to look at it from the outside, but you get drawn in and you get emotionally engaged in in the subject of your story. And then the real highlight, that brings me to the real highlight of my experience of, of making the first film and, and again working on the second one, mm-hmm. is that the importance that film can play in telling people about issues like this and being affirmed in, in what I do and validated in this role of being a storyteller on issues about the natural world, wildlife in particular, that are important to us. As Les pointed out, we are the planet. The, the water is our circulation. The air is our is our breath. And if we don't deal with this situation, this this massive issue right now, we we're not doing anyone justice, particularly ourselves. We are the the problem. Storytelling mm-hmm. is how we learn about ourselves, about each other, about our world, mm-hmm. and and that's mm-hmm. how how we pass it on. And and I'm a great believer in the in the importance of storytellers in, in any society in any community and, and that's why I, I love what I do thank you Bruce thank you, thank you. <laughs> thanks uh, next Dr. Priyan Pereira Priyan is a senior lecturer in the Department of Forestry at the University of Sri Jai Vardhanpura in Sri Lanka He's a member as well of the Pangolin Specialist Group at IUCN which is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Priyan, what are the specific threats to survival of the pangolins in Sri Lanka? How do they differ from the from the African ones? First, uh, thanks for having me in the panel. And uh, it's kind of a special or privilege to be the only person in the panel to talk about Asian pangolins. Well, thank you for, for attending. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and especially the Indian pangolins uh, occurring in Sri Lanka. Talking about the Indian pangolins, which I studied most, they could be found in uh, throughout the Indian subcontinent. Uh, Indian pangolin population in Sri Lanka may be of special interest because Sri Lanka being an island, we are talking about a geographically isolated population of uh, pangolins. We know that geographical isolation leads to uh, a speciation. So we may be uh, looking at a different subspecies. Maybe in Sri Lanka, the uh, species is uh, widely distributed throughout the island from uh, the lowlands up to uh, 1,900 uh, meters above sea level. And uh, they occupy a variety of habitats, actually. 
the threats and challenges they face uh, also vary based on the habitats uh, they occupy. Um, so in the wild, the pangolins have uh, very few natural predators actually. Uh, in Sri Lanka, leopards, sloth bear, and crocodiles would be considered as the uh, main predators, but the predation uh, rates uh, are believed to be very low. So the main threat uh, for their survival actually comes from humans. Their meat is considered as a delicacy, especially in rural communities. So uh, local hunters kill them for bush meat for their own consumption. And in addition to that, in a Sri Lankan context, uh, unintentional kills like uh, traps laid out for other agricultural pests. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find that uh, pangolins often become a non-target species getting caught up in uh, these kind of nylon nets or snares. Mm-hmm. And uh, also um, in the southwest lowland of the country, we have oil palm plantations. And in these uh, plantations, at times, uh, pangolins are considered as pests because they tend to dig around trees and uh, causing some sort of damages to uh, the crop. They are being uh, considered as pests. And in addition, uh, I think, uh, as as it is the case elsewhere in the world, as uh, even uh, Lisa mentioned, habitat loss, fragmentation are the issues. So obviously, there are factors other than wildlife trade uh, that really affect on pangolins in Sri Lanka. But coming back to your question on uh, the impact of uh, illegal trade, in the Sri Lankan context, uh, uh, this is actually uh, an emerging issue. When we talk about the illegal trade, we can talk about the international trade and the local trade. But the uh, species is strictly protected uh, by the law in the country, by the flora and fauna protection. They, they are protected by law. They are, okay. Uh, yes. So the uh, trading or killing is uh, completely um, prohibited or illegal. But uh, we have seen that some sort of high-end niche markets are slowly developing for Bengali sales and uh, Bengali meat. Especially uh, we've been uh, having these uh, large-scale development pro- projects going on in the country with uh, uh, migratory workers are employed, especially from uh, Eastern Asia. We have seen that, uh, especially in these uh, project areas, uh, there are some markets developing for pangolin meat. What are the countries in Asia that uh, there's specifically growing demand for? Can you identify them? Uh, yeah, in the uh, Sri Lankan uh, scenario, I'm we have development projects where Chinese laborers are currently employed. So we have seen that uh, some markets are developing and live penguins are sold at anywhere between uh, 50 to 200 US dollars, depending on the uh, weight of the animal. So definitely we can see that uh, some markets are developing for penguins in the local context, which is actually bad news. Mm-hmm. Is Vietnam among the countries? I know that with rhino horn, for instance, there's quite a large Vietnamese market. Is that true for pangolin scales as well? Do you know? In Vietnam? Yeah. Actually, I'm not uh, very much aware about that. Uh, In the uh, Sri Lankan context, there's no such demand for scales locally uh, because in the traditional medicine or anything, uh, we don't use uh, those components as uh, ingredients. I see. Um, So mainly uh, the animal is killed for its meat. Meat, got it. Thank you. So do you think, Priyan, there's any hope for, for uh, a solution to human-pangolin coexistence? 
I think so. Yes, uh, definitely. Because if you look at uh, some of the success stories elsewhere in the world, you will see that not necessarily related to pangolins, but uh, for other species, there are some many such models. Now, in the Sri Lankan uh, scenario, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the pangolins occupy a variety of habitats, ranging from tropical rainforest to dry mixed uh, rainforest, and then human modified habitats such as uh, agricultural lands. Uh, yeah. rubber plantations, and even uh, rural home gardens. And um, our recent studies showed that these remaining forest patches play a key role in sustaining the remaining pangolin populations because uh, most of their living burrows uh, could be found in relatively undisturbed forest. But uh, on the other hand, uh, their foraging habitats tend to vary greatly, and uh, even uh, uh, forest plantations, agricultural crops, Plants and uh, other home gardens uh, are used as uh, foraging habitats by Indian pangolins. And in fact, there are some reports that pangolins are uh, feeding on insects and maggots found in uh, trash cans in the backyards of rural home gardens. So uh, they do not exclusively feed on uh, termites and ants, but instead uh, their diet may comprise of a variety of tiny insects. Uh, and on the other hand, now, in Sri Lanka, over 70% of the reported wildlife crimes uh, related to pangolins mm -hmm. have outside the uh, protected area, protected countries, protected area. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, over 60% of the animal rescues, like pangolin rescues, has again taken place outside protected areas. So it's clear that the country's protected areas alone will not going to help the future populations of pangolins. I think, as you mentioned, the conservation models based on uh, coexistence uh, seems to be the way forward. And in this regard, uh, enhancing the public awareness on uh, ecological importance and the conservation value of the species will hold an important position in the future conservation agenda. Thank you, Priyan. So we hope for the best and education is key. We're at the end of our, our conversation and I will be taking questions soon, but I just wanted to end our conversation on a, on a quote about the importance of conservation generally. It's a quote that uh, actually Bruce Young introduced us to earlier. It's from Hubert Reeves, who's a Canadian astrophysicist and a popularizer of science. Uh, over to you, Bruce. I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> no, good quote. No. <laughs> it's a quote that just piqued my interest and, and seemed to, to sum up a lot, of, a lot of what we're talking about. As you said, it's from Hubert Reeves. Man is the most insane species. He worships an invisible God and destroys a visible nature. Unaware that this nature he's destroying is this God he's worshipping. I just thought there was a lot of food for thought there for us. It's amazing. I'm going to read his books now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he's, a, he's a Canadian, but he lives in France. He's 88 years old, and he's a fascinating thinker. He's all over YouTube. You can catch oh, his show. I'm, I'm going to Google him after this. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So now we can go to our uh, Q&A portion of the program. Question one. This one is for Ray, specifically. It's from Alberto Famelli. Are there any projects attempting to assess genetic structure of pangolin population in order to pinpoint the origin of individuals in the market and understand traffic routes. 
as has been done, for instance, with Alfred Ivory? We have attempted uh, to look, firstly, is there a genetic difference between individuals within subpopulations, for example, of the Temex pangolin? We would go and get samples from Malawi, from Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, and try and note, firstly, is there a difference in the subpopulations? Because if there is, essentially, then we could point out from genetic analysis of the trade, the possible origins of those particular individuals. We came up with an empty bucket, unfortunately. The next level of assessment will be not just species genetics, but individual genetics. So, for example, Homo sapiens sapiens is one species, but you and I genetically differ from one another. The problem with that analysis is it's extremely expensive. So if we want to analyze the trade at the level that we think we should, it's going to cost millions and millions of US dollars annually. So now we're on to the next step, and it's isotope analysis. So if we can determine through isotopes the variation between pangolins based on things like their diet, we can take isotopes from particular ant species, we can relate it then to particular pangolins in a particular region, for example, and then we could pinpoint that region. So that's the next step. I am aware of the excellent study done on elephant ivory where they could disseminate the origins of ivory within the trade, and it was a fantastic study. So we tried to mimic that, but unfortunately, it didn't succeed. However, in saying that, it's really early days, and there's some really, really good genetic scientists and isotope analysis ecologists that are working on that. So I think it's important to determine origins because we know certain countries such as Nigeria are hubs and not necessarily an origin, and the entire Gulf of Guinea may be an origin, but it's being shipped out of Nigeria. But a very important question and something that we are putting a lot of energy into. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Question number two is for Nikki. It's from Kale Hendry. Can one volunteer at the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Hospital during breaks from university to gain more knowledge about the wildlife of South Africa? You can just drop us an email, which you can find on our social media platforms. Okay. You have people like fellows or you have volunteers? We have students and we have veterinary students doing their internships. We have vets from other countries. We have conservationists from other countries. We have all kinds of people, but they're usually people that are that are in the conservation or veterinary or rehab field. So they have an interest and a passion, which they uh, share with us and vice versa. Okay, thank you. Question three. This one is for Les. It comes from Gary Wax. Can an enclosed golf estate be a protective area for rehabilitated pangolins? What space and other elements are required to create a productive safe haven? That's a good question. <laughs> when you look at biodiversity and habitat as a whole, pangolins dig, and anything that digs in a golf course is going to be wow. less than desirable on the green. <laughs> So, so I would think if there's a termite mound anywhere close to the greens, the golfers aren't going to be impressed. It's the problem with mixing most wildlife and golf estates is that animals have hooves and feet and they feed on grass. In some cases, they pull it out by the roots. So you've got to be very careful about how you mix wildlife with specifically a golf estate. But I think pangolins would probably be a less than desirable addition to a golf estate because They'll constantly be stressed, and I'm sure the short-sighted golfers will think they're a big ball. It's an interesting uh, thought, though, right? They're creative. 
<laughs> yeah, it is. And I think one of the things that golf courses do is they've got bands of undeveloped vegetation and bush, which is fantastic for birding and fantastic for other small mammals like a diker, red and blue diker particularly, do very well on golf courses. So there are species that you can introduce into a golf course, but I think digging species would probably not be amongst them. And I think that would preclude pangolins from meeting the criteria of being desirable in a golf course. Certainly that would be my opinion. I don't know if the rest of the panel would have a, a view. <laughs> Here's a question from uh, Sophie Harris. With the suspicion of COVID-19 coming from pangolins, although it is yet to be proven, do you think this will be an advantage or disadvantage to the pangolin population? On one hand, it could bring their plight into the spotlight, raising awareness, etc. But it could also cause people to become fearful of them and cause increased persecution. Priyan, do you want to have a, have a go at that? Yeah, but uh, as you mentioned, there are again uh, two sides for that. Uh, one side is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, people might become uh, fear of them, right? Uh, because uh, they are the potential transmitters of the disease. Uh, yeah. But on the other side, the right side is we, as conservationists, uh, we can uh, encourage authorities to push them to end the illegal trade of uh, pangolins, right? Citing these uh, potential risks. This has to be done uh, cautiously because uh, in a way to not to build a negative perception of it. Okay. Question five. This one is directed to Nikki. The workshops you mentioned, are they available for guides at game parks, lodges, etc. as well? I think we could certainly put one together for anybody who, who was interested. Yes. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll be signing up. I saw the wild uh, last year. Well, 2019, when I was in Africa, and it was quite something. <laughs> I feel like I'm in an elite club now. I think you are, yeah. <laughs> Question number six. Where can we see pangolins in the wild? Les, maybe this is for you. I think that, again, the rest of the panelists would be... I haven't traveled extensively in African pangolin habitat to be able to answer that directly. They're extremely secretive, very shy animals, and wherever they exist, they're very difficult to see. So I think probably the best place to see pangolins would be any of the big, pristine wildlife reserves, the big reserves outside and in the Kruger National Park. I've actually seen them personally uh, in the Kruger Park, in the Sabi Sands Game Reserve, and in the Timbavati. So the big reserves outside of the national parks, they still occur. And what you must do is when you see a pride of lions that all have their heads down and are all running around like this, that's a good place to go and look because they're probably playing soccer with a pangolin and trying to get into it. The pangolin's too big for them to get their mouth over it and those scales are keeping it protected. They're remarkable creatures and they are remarkably difficult to see. I started operating in the wildlife translocation area 40 years ago and traveling across the northern province at all hours of day and night delivering giraffe and driving back in the dev night we used to see a lot of pangolins 40 years ago along the road probably uh, three or four times a week we would see pangolins um, on the on the road they were extensive in the northern province and i'm talking particularly messina yp limpopo valley that sort of area as you move further south you still saw them periodically once or twice a month. Mm -hmm. But in the last 15 years, much less so, and even in the reserves in the last 10 or 15 years, they've become much more difficult to see. So 
wherever they occur, they're secretive, they're very difficult to see because they're crepuscular and nocturnal in many cases. So, I mean, my answer would be any of the big private reserves where they can do night drives gives you an advantage. So anywhere where you can go out at night, you've got a better chance of seeing them. But anywhere where they're focused and protected, and I think there's an increase, the work that Nikki and Ray are doing of redistributing these animals to private reserves um, and re-establishing them, returning them to those wildlife habitats, those are going to be good places to go and see them. Yeah, I saw mine at dusk. That's probably a good time, right? Before it's completely dark, where you, you can see less. And yeah, I think all of the rehabilitated animals, their behavior and their movement patterns are better understood in the populations that have been reintroduced because they're actually studying them. All the reserves where they study them, I know Tsalu's got unbelievably good pangolin viewing in the Kalahari Desert as a as a, a reserve. All the reintroduced animals that Nikki and Ray have put into northern Zululand and Pinda. I've seen at Londolozi, I've seen at Angala, I've seen it in Singita, I've seen in at Leopard Hills in the Sabi Sands. So all the big private reserves in the Sabi Sands have pretty good viewing opportunities. But this is only South Africa. I'm sure Lisa would be able to tell us where in Zim you could see them. Yeah. I think in Zimbabwe, the best place to see them would be in our national parks. Hmm. That would be, like you say, Les, it's, it's the protected national parks where I would recommend that people go and try and view pangolin. Thank you. I have another question from Sophie Harris, and this one is for Bruce. Do you plan to create a film on the Asian species of pangolin? We are working on a second film, not specifically on the four Asian species, because they're pretty much gone. That's why there's this pressure on the African pangolins. What we're looking at in the second film, which is called Scales, is the reason that these animals are under such pressure from the Asian trade in, in uh, the Asian traditional medicine business. So we will be going to Vietnam and China this year as soon as we can to ask that question and look at the reason behind this demand. That's what is the real story, as, as we talked about earlier. If we can affect the demand, then that will begin to ease the pressure. But whether there's time to do that, as both Ray and, and Lisa pointed out, I'm, I'm not sure. But if people know about it, then maybe they can begin to change attitudes and things can begin to shift in favor of the pangolin. It's a long shot. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have one more question. This will be the last one. And it's a question for all of you, please. Except for watching the film, where does one find good information about pangolin behavior, etc.? Uh, do you want scientific answer or do you want to sort of a layman? <laughs> <laughs> I guess probably more layman's or if you've got some scientific throat in. <laughs> on the websites of all of our organizations, there's information. Mm-hmm. On ours, there's information on each species. But obviously, we can't bombard our website with lots and lots of information. But a group of scientists and rehabilitation experts, media people, but everybody who's got anything to do with pangolins has recently published a book called Pangolin Science Society and Conservation, if I remember correctly. Lisa was author, I was author, Nikki was author, So, and, and our colleagues in India and Sri Lanka and, and have all contributed. And that's got pretty much everything we know about pangolins to date in there. It is available to purchase, but that's a mine of information. The IUCN website has also got extensive information, not only on things like pangolin behavior, but other things 
of the trade and reproduction or whatever other factors. But I think those are pretty good sources of reliable, unbiased information. We'll close off then. Thank you so much for everyone for participating and for tuning in. There's much more to learn, obviously, about this fascinating creature, the pangolin. Thank you for listening to part one of our special series for World Pangolin Day. Tune in next week for part two, which explores a pangolin's journey from rescue from the illegal wildlife trade through rehabilitation and onto release.